Chapter Eighteen of the Riddle of the Frozen Flame by Mary E. Hanshu and Thomas W. Hanshu. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Eighteen: Possible Excitement. Meanwhile, Cleek, Mister Narkom, and Dollops stayed on at the Towers for such time as it would take to have the coroner's inquest arranged and Merriton brought up before the local magistrate. Mr. Narkom was frankly uneasy over the whole affair. "'There's something fishy in it, Cleek,' he kept saying. "'I don't like the looks of it. Taking that innocent boy up for a murder which I feel certain he never committed. Of course, circumstantial evidence points strongly against him, but—' "'He's better out of the way, at all events.' interposed Cleek. Mind you, I don't say the chap is innocent. Men of Wynne's calibre have the knack of raising the very devil in a person who is under their influence for long. And there's Borkin's story. The queer little one-sided smile looped up his cheek for a moment and was gone again in a twinkling. He crossed to where Mr. Narkom stood and put a hand on his arm. "'Tell me,' he said quietly, "'did you ever hear of a chap squirming and moaning and doing the rest of the things that the man said Wynne was doing in the garden pathway, when a bullet had got him clean through the brain? Something fishy there, if you like.' "'I should think so,' replied Mr. Narkom. Why, the chap would have died instantly. Then you think Borkins himself is guilty? On the contrary, I do not, returned Cleek emphatically. If my theory's correct, Borkins is not the murderer of Dacre Wynne. Much more likely to be Nigel Merriton, for that matter. Then there's the question of this I.O.U. that I found on the body. "'Signed Lester Stark, and the doctor—Gad, what a loyal friend to have—told me that Lester Stark, Merriton, and a little man called West were bosom friends and clubmates. "'Then perhaps the man Stark killed him, after all,' threw in Mr. Narkom at this juncture, and there was a tinge of eagerness in his excited tones— which made Cleek whirl round upon him and say accusingly, "'Old friend, Merriton has won your heart as he has won others. You're dead nuts on the youngster, and I must say he does seem such a clean, honest, upstanding young fellow. But you're ready to convict anyone of the murder of Dacre Wynne but Merriton himself. Own up now, you've a sneaking regard for the fellow.' Mr. Narkom reddened. "'Well, if you want the truth of it, I have,' he said finally, in an I-don't-care-what-the-devil-you-think sort of voice. "'He's exactly the kind of chap I'd like for a son of my own, and—and and dash it! I don't like seeing him in the lock-up, and that's the long and short of it.' "'So long as it's only the long and short, and not the end of it, it doesn't greatly matter.' returned Cleek. "'Hello, is that you, Dollops?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Any news for me?' 
"'Found that chap with the straggling black moustache "'that tried to do me in the other night? "'I've not a doubt that you've discovered the answer to the whole riddle "'by the look upon your face.' "'Dollops cautiously approached, looking over his shoulder "'as though he expected any minute "'that the cadaverous face of Borkins would peer in at him.' or that perhaps Dacre Wynne himself would rise from the dead and shake an accusing finger in his face. He reached Cleek and laid a timid hand upon the detective's arm. Then he bent his face close to Cleek's ear. "'Well, I've an inkling that I'm well on to the untying of it, s'elp me if I ain't,' he whispered in highly melodramatic tones. Cleek laughed, but looked interested at once, while Mr. Narkom prepared to give his best attention to what the lad had to say. "'Trace the blighter with the straggling whiskers on his lip, anyway,' he said triumphantly, casting still another glance over his shoulder in the direction of the door, and lowering his tone still further. "'Caught a glimpse of him long by the Saltfleet Road this afternoon, Governor.' and thinks I to myself, you're the blinking blighter what tried to do the governor in, are you? Well, you wait, my lad. There's a little taste of hell's sauce a-coming your way, what'll make you sit up and bawl for your mother. He'd got on sailoring togs, Mr. Cleek, and a black hat pulled down low over one eye. Mate with him looked like a real bad un. "'Gold rings in his ears he'd got like a blooming lady, "'and a blue sweater and sailor's breeches. "'Chin whiskers, too, what were something like rotten seaweed. "'Oh, a heavenly specimen of a chap he were, I can tell you.' "'On the Saltfleet Road, eh?' interposed Cleek rapidly "'as the boy paused a moment for breath. "'So?' "'My midnight friend is doubtless sailing for foreign parts "'as the safest place when coroner's evidence begins to get too hot for him. "'And what then, Dollops?' "'Couldn't find out much else, Mr. Cleek, "'cept to trace the place where the beggar hangs out, "'and that's a bit of a shanty just off Saltfleet Bay, "'and a stone's throw from what looks to me "'very like a boat factory of some kind. "'Reckon the chap's employed there.' "'as from a casual chat with a sailor in Johnny "'in the bar-parlour of the pig and whistle, "'where I was a lining of me empty stomach. "'Detecting is that hungry work, sir, "'with a sausage and a pint of four and a half. "'This fellow tells me that pretty near everyone around here works there. "'I asked him what they did, and he says, "'Make boats and things, "'with now and again a little flurry in shipping "'to break the monotony. "'Anyway,' I chased the devil what nearly got you, Governor, and that's something. And if I don't give him a taste of the happy hereafter, well, my name's not Dollops. Cleek laughed and laid a hand upon the lad's shoulder. You've done a lot toward unravelling the mystery, Dollops, my lad, he said. A regular right-hand man you are, eh, Mr. Narkom? This evening we'll hie us to the Saltfleet Road and see what further the pig and whistle can reveal to us. It'll be like the old times of the twisted arm days, boy, where every second held its own unknown and certain danger. 
give us an appetite for our breakfast, eh?' He laughed again, a happy schoolboyish laugh which brought a positively shocked expression to Mr. Narkom's round face. "'My dear Cleek,' he expostulated, "'really, one might think that you actually enjoyed this sort of thing.' "'One of these fine days, if you're not careful, you'll be caught napping, "'and it'll take all dollops and my ingenuity to get you out of the clutches. "'I do beg of you to be careful, for Ailsa's sake, if not for mine.' "'At mention of the name, for a second the whole look upon Cleek's face altered.' "'Something came into his eyes that softened their keenness.' Something settled down over his countenance, wiping away the mirth and the grim lines together. He sighed. Hey-ho, he said softly, spinning round upon his heel and surveying Mr. Narkom with a half-smile upon his lips. I will be careful, dear friend, I promise. And I have given my word to her as well and that the life of Hamilton Cleek should be so precious to any such angel as that, well, it fair beats me, as Dollops would say. I'll be careful, all right, you may depend upon it. But Dollops and I are going to have a little outing on our own. We'll ransack the make-up box after lunch and see what it can produce. And if we don't bring back something worth hearing to you on our return tonight. Then I'll retire from Scotland Yard altogether and take a kindergarten class. Gad, I feel sorry for young Merriton, but there's no other course open to us at present but to keep him where he is. Coroner's inquest takes place tomorrow afternoon, and a lot may happen in the meantime. Mr. Narkom gravely shook his head. Don't like the thing at all, Headland, he supplemented slowly. "'lighting a fresh cigarette from the stump of the other one "'and blowing a cloud of smoke into the air. "'There's something here that we haven't got at. "'Something big. I feel it.' "'Well, you'll have that feeling further augmented "'before many more days are over, my friend,' "'returned Cleek meaningly. "'What did the letter from headquarters say?' I noticed you got one this morning, and recognised it by the way the stamp was set on the envelope. Though I must say your secretary is more than discreet. It looked for all the world like a love-letter, which no doubt your curious friend Borkins thought it was. But if Cleek appeared in fine fettle at the prospect of a possible exciting evening with Dollops, Mr. Narkom's barometer did not register the same comforting high altitude. He did not smile. Oh, it had to do with these continual bank robberies, he replied with a sigh. They're enough to wear a man right out. Seems so simple and all that, and yet never a trace left. Fellows reports that another one took place at Ealing. As usual, only gold stolen, not a banknote touched. 
They'll be holding us up in the main road like Dick Turpin if the robbers are allowed to continue on their way like this. It's damnable, to say the least. The beggars seem to get off scot-free every time. If this case here wasn't so difficult and important, I'd be off up to London to have a look into things again. Frankly, it worries me. Cleek lifted a restraining hand. Don't let it do anything so foolish as that to you, old man, he interposed. Give em rope to hang themselves, lots of rope. This is just the opportunity they want. Give orders for nothing to be done. Let em have a good run for their money, and by and by you'll have em so they'll eat out of your hand. There's nothing like patience in this sort of a job. They're bound to get careless soon, and then will be your chance. I wish I could feel as confident about it as you do, returned Mr. Narkom with a shake of the head. But you've solved so many unsolvable riddles in your time, man, so I suppose I'll just have to trust your judgment and let your opinion cheer me up. Still. Ah, Borkins, lunch ready? I must say I don't like eating the food of a man I've just placed in prison, but I suppose one must eat. And there are a few very necessary inquiries to be gone into before the coroner's inquest tomorrow. The men have been up from the local morgue, haven't they? Borkins, who had tapped discreetly upon the door, and then put in a sleek head to announce lunch, came a little farther into the room and replied in the affirmative. Save for a slight light of triumph which seemed to flicker in his close-set eyes and play occasionally about his narrow lips, there was nothing to show in his demeanour that such an extremely large pebble as his master's conviction for murder had caused the ripples to break on the smooth surface of his life's tenor. Cleek blew a cloud of smoke into the air and swung one leg across the other with a sort of devil-may-care air that was part of his headland make-up in this piece. "'Well,' said he off-handedly, "'all I can say is I wouldn't like to be in your master's shoes, Borkins. He's guilty, not a doubt of it, and he'll certainly be called to justice.' "'You think so?' An undercurrent of eagerness ran in Borkins's tone. "'Most assuredly I do. Not a chance for him, poor beggar. He'll possibly swing for it, too. Pleasant conjecture before lunch, I must say. And we'll have it all cold if we don't look sharp about it, Lake, old chap. Come along.' They spent the afternoon in discussing the case bit by bit, probing into it, tearing it to ribbons, analysing, comparing, rehearsing once more the scene of that fateful night when Dacre Wynne had crossed the fens and, according to everyone's but Borkin's evidence, had never returned. By evening, Mr. Narkom, notebook in hand, was suffering with writer's cramp and complained of a headache. As Cleek rose from this private investigation and stretched his hands over his head, he gave a sudden little laugh. <laughs> 
"'Well, you'll be able to rest yourself as much as you like this evening, Mr. Lake,' he said lightly, trying the muscles of his right arm with his left hand, and nodding as he felt them ride up, smooth and firm as ivory, under his coat-sleeve. "'I'm not in such bad fettle for an amateur, if anything in the nature of a scrap comes along, after all. Though I'm not anticipating any fighting, I can assure you. There's the morning's papers and the local rag with various lurid and inaccurate accounts of the whole ghastly affair. Merriton seems to have a good many friends in these parts, and the local press is strong in his favour, but that's as far as it goes. At any rate, they'll keep you interested until we come home again. By the way, you might drop a hint to Borkins that I shall be writing some letters in my room tonight and don't want to be disturbed, and that if he wants to go out, Dollops will post them for me and see to my wants, will you? I don't want him to suspicion anything. Mr. Narkom nodded. He snapped his notebook to and bound the elastic round it as Cleek crossed to the door and threw it open. "'I'll be going up to my room now, Lake,' he said, in clear high tones that carried down the empty hallway to whatever listener might be there to hear them. "'I've some letters to write, one to my fiancée, you know, and naturally I don't want to be disturbed.' "'All right.' said Mr. Narkom, equally clearly. So long. Then the door closed sharply, and Cleek mounted the stairs to his room, whistling softly to himself meanwhile, just as Borkins rounded the corner of the dining-room door, and acknowledged his friendly nod with one equally friendly. A smile played about the corners of the man's mouth, and his eyes narrowed, as he watched Cleek disappear up the stairs. Fur, he said to the shadows, "'So much for your Lunnon policeman, eh? Writing love letters on a night like this, young sapped.' Then he swung upon his heel and retraced his steps to the kitchen. Upstairs in the dark passageway, Cleek stood and laughed noiselessly, his shoulders shaking with the mirth that swayed him. Borkin's idea of a Lunnon policeman had pleased him mightily. End of chapter 18